Romans chapter 6, we're jumping into this uh, and continuing our walk with Christ, our new life with Christ. Now that we're saved and we know how we've been justified, um, we're getting into this. And I want us uh, to read God's word. And again, as we're reading, it's okay to close your eyes and just listen to the words uh, that God is giving to us. These are not my words. It's wonderful to soak it in and listen to what God is telling us about our new life in Christ. It's so easy to be distracted by our thoughts. And frankly, it's easy to be distracted by our life in America and the things going on around us and the freedoms that we have. We can be so distracted by all the choices we get to make. And so we think about our life with Christ not really thinking about what has happened to us when God saved us. And so I just take this time to listen uh, to Romans chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 12, and then we'll go to verse 23. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make your... You obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law? But under grace, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I'm not speaking in, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit are you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a wonderful section about our salvation. One of the things that we realize is as we kind of walk through these things, this passage starting in chapter 5 going through chapter 8, all of this passage really is dealing with twos. We see a lot of twos in here. We talk about 
one person and another person, one kingdom, another kingdom, one acts versus another act. And so we're going to be going through this and we see what God's gospel does. We know it's God's gospel. That's not defined by us. It's his gospel. The good news that he worked for us. It's, it's beautiful. One of the things we realize is that we are set apart. We are sanctified our right position in Christ. When we hear the fact that we have a right position, it means we are sanctified, but not to be uh, misunderstood from sanctification. And that means we are being sanctified, progressively being made right daily for Christ or being conformed into the image of Christ. So we know that positionally, once God saved us, we are declared right, and we have a position that is being held for us in heaven for the rest of eternity with God. And that is because we've been set apart because of God's work in the gospel. But we know now that in our life, daily, we are being sanctified. So you're going to see this in our text. We heard the word sanctification. That means progressively being made right or being able to do righteous things or godly things in our daily life. So don't get those two confused. That's what we're talking about. Then we have these two men that we've been harping on over the last few weeks, and that is we have Adam, our representative of our sinful flesh. And the whole world is under two representatives, Adam, the sinful flesh, or Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, who has positionally set us aside to be in the Lord, in Christ, in heaven, because of his work. So you're under one of those two representatives, our representative being declared right before God. That's Christ. That's what he does. So we have those two men. Then we saw we have two kingdoms, the reign of sinful darkness under the law, and we have the reign of holy light under grace. We have this pure perfection in God, in Christ. He is holy, he is just, he is righteous, he is glorious, he is light. But sin is dark, it's covering, it's, it's hurtful, it's decaying, it's destroying. It's just all of these things, it's in the ground. Think about death under the earth, in the ground. Think of all of that, that's sin, and being in the sinful flesh. But being in Christ, in his kingdom, is light. It's glorious. It's, it's living. It's freeing because we're no longer dead, but really have life that is under grace. That's where we left off last week in verse 14 when it talks about we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. If you see that in your notes side by side, what this is saying is, is that the the law is what man must do in order to be right, but grace is what God has done. So you see the parallels here. If you keep going down, I do something for God, that's the law. When we live under the law, we're trying to always appease God and do something for God. But when we live under grace, what does that mean? Well, that is God has done something for me, so that way I am right with God. I don't have to appease God because I'm already right. Because of the gospel. The other one is the work of the flesh. The law is all about what you do. Grace is the work of Christ. 
And also we see the law is trying to struggle to measure up to God. We try to, to measure up. Grace is God brings me up to his standard. When we're under grace, he lifts us up to the right standard. But the law is struggling to make it up to make the right standing, which you can never do. The law fosters a spirit of self-righteousness, boasting, look what I've done. We know a lot of struggles in relationship is because of, look at me, look what I'm doing, look what I've done. It's all about me. But when we live under grace, when we're living by the gospel, it fosters this genuine humility and saying God gets all the credit. It's all about him. Look at the last, number seven. The attitude is this. You know we're living under the law when our attitude is that we are bondage to sin, and we know that because we say, I can't, I can't. We look at the things in life and we feel like, well, I can never measure up. I can never do this. I can never do that. I I need help because I can never measure up. And we get stuck in this cycle of trying to appease the way we feel because we have this attitude of, I can't. But when we're under grace, we have deliverance. We have this God can attitude. We realize that it's never been about me. We look to the Lord. We have faith. We trust what Christ is doing in my life. We don't look and we don't say, well, I can't measure up. I can never measure up. We don't feel that way. We don't live that way. We actually see opposite. We realize in the Lord, God can. And so we're satisfied. We're content with whatever God is doing in our life as he conforms us into his image. Now we get to the next illustration in our text, and that is we are going to be a slave to somebody. And this idea of slave, many translations call this a bond servant because of the connotation of slave. Nobody likes the term slave, so they've tried to, to, you know, to make it sound a little bit better by calling it a bond servant. But in our text we see that this word is really important. In verses 15 through 19, it's mentioned five times the word slave is used. And so what is a slave? Well, it's an individual that's bound to another. You have no rights. The reality is, is you belong to this person. When Paul is talking about a slave, this is what he's talking about. When he tells people in Rome about what a a slave is, they're like, well, yeah, we know what a slave is. And this means to submit to their will. If you're a slave to somebody, you're submitting to that person's will. It's not your will be done, but it's their will be done. You're consumed by the desire of that master. When you're a slave to someone, you're consumed by the desire and will of the master. You know, it's interesting, as Paul has already mentioned being a slave, if you go all the way back to Romans chapter 1, and three words in, right off the bat, Paul knew exactly who he was. As he's talking to the church, he's reminding who we are. But in verse 1, he says, Paul, a in some of your verse, Bibles it says, servant. But it's actually the word slave. He says, I am a slave of Christ. 
He knew exactly who he belonged to. He knew who his master was. Just because he was saved or just because he was an apostle, just because he was this great guy, he had it all together. He knew, he, had, he still knew it didn't matter. All that mattered was that he knew that he was a slave to Christ. He was bought with a price by the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus now owns him because the Lord bought him at the cross. He now controls, governs. Though an apostle, he remained a slave. He was no longer a slave to his old life in sin, but now he's a slave to Christ. Right? There is no one in the world that is not a slave. I want you to think about that. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 15 and 16. Everyone is going to be a slave. You're either going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to righteousness, to God. What's interesting as we look at this idea of slavery and the importance of this is in Rome, the whole Roman Empire, do you know that 30% of the Roman Empire, they say, some people even go up to 45%. So I'm taking the low, the low percentage. I was looking at the Smithsonian, looking at Oxford, looking at Cambridge, looking at all these different historians, looking at Josephus, and they estimate that 30% of Rome were made up of slaves. Not servants, slaves. Think about that. 30%. Just in Rome itself, in Rome itself, it was about 30%. But if you take out the whole empire... It was, it was spread out, but mostly in Rome, they estimate 5 million slaves in Rome, in just that general area. That's a lot of slaves, isn't it? That's why they had the, the lifestyle that they had, because everybody was doing everything for them. They, just, they did nothing, basically. This was not a, by the way, as we think about slave today, we think of racial, ethnic issues, but that's not the case. The people that were slaves were slaves because they were bankrupt. Many people sold themselves into slavery because they couldn't pay their bills, so they would sell themselves to somebody, and now the new master would assume their debt and take their debt and pay their debt off, and then they would be owned by this person now for the rest of their life, and they would just basically be taken care of by that master. They were also conquered people. Slaves were people that were conquered. As Roman Empire spread out, they were being conquered and they were being made slaves. Now, if you're a rich and a conquered people, you could buy your freedom. Slaves had the right, even in the Roman Empire, to buy their freedom, which is interesting. They had that ability. If for some way you could get your hold on some income, you can buy your freedom. And there were people that did that. There were some even generals in the, the army in Rome that became high-ranking officials that once were slaves. But they bought their way out. And then there were those that were born into slavery. They just had no choice. Parents were slaves. They were slaves. The idea here, what Paul is reminding us, is that slavery represented someone that had no personal freedom. Paul is reminding us, this, a slave couldn't just do whatever he wanted. He didn't have that personal freedom. His entire life was given to his master, who had paid the price to purchase him from another. 
A servant is high, you know, we think of servant, right? If you think of a servant, a servant in the Roman Empire was a hired person, and they came and went. We have that same mentality. We know that we, there's people that are servants, and they, they come and go as they please, but they're a hired person. They get a wage, and they come and they go, and they have more personal freedom of choice in what's going on in their life. But that's not a slave. A slave was high, or a servant was hired where a slave was owned. A slave had no independence, no self-autonomy, no personal rights. In fact, a slave was a piece of property, was owned by someone else. There was no negotiation by a slave with his master regarding his fate and lot in life. What his master decided is what happened. To be a slave meant to be under complete submission and total obedience to a master. That's what Paul is saying here when he says, you will be a slave to someone. In verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are under, not under the law anymore, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either sin or unto righteousness. You get the idea of what Paul is talking about. Rome knew what a slave was. They knew what that meant. We struggle with that concept because we want to transfer and say servant rather than slave. So as we look at our new life in Christ, what is Paul, and what is God telling us about our new life? Well, the first one, we cannot use God's grace to brush off occasional sin. Did you see what he said in verse 15? How many of you realize, like, that sounds really familiar? Well, if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 6, it's almost the exact same thing. Go back to verse 1. It says, what shall we say then? Verse 15, what then? Verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 15, because we're not under the law but under grace, are we to sin? And he says, by no means. Do you notice his answer is the same? And the question is very similar. Paul begins here in verse 15 by asking a very similar rhetorical question. Hey, now that we're saved, should we continue to sin? Verse 1. And then he says, hey, now that we realize what the gospel has done in our life, we know it to be true, and we know that we have the grace of God, should we just occasionally sin? By no means. The first question, the verb was to continue, to habitually sin. When we are in the flesh, in that kingdom, under Adam, we just, we sin. We, it's a habit. It's, it controls us. We're under the power of sin. But now when we're in Christ, when God saves us and removes us from that and brings us into life, we have this new life that's no longer under the power and control of sin. Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And now he's saying this. He says, now that we know that, let's ask that question again. Because he knows us, right? He knows people. Have you ever played a game with somebody who says, well, you know, they find loopholes to the rules of the game. That's what Paul's 
doing here? He's like, I know some of you are saying, well, there's a loophole. Now that I have grace, I can just, you know, sin doesn't really matter. And Paul says, no way. You can't think that way. The second verb in verse 15 of our text says this. It says, shall we sin? It's referring to an occasional just saying, well, it's, it's no problem. I can go do this because it won't have an effect on me because I live in grace. That's what he's talking about. Do we just brush off and say, well, I, I have this freedom now. And because I have this freedom, I can do this. And, and it's okay. Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter, verse 4. <laughs> Jude 4 says this, For there are certain people who have crept in unannounced. These people don't come in and say, Hey, look at me, I'm going to be teach you something foolish. They just kind of slide right on in, that's the idea. And he says, Who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert, or pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and denying our only master, the Lord Jesus Christ. They said that they're going to pervert God's grace as a license for sensual living. They're going to say, well, I can pursue pleasure, I can pursue this, and I can pursue that because I have grace. And Judah's saying, no, that perverts. It just twists and it makes God's grace ugly. We call these, I call these the loophole Christians. They're, they're the gamers. They're trying to game the system. I, I, yeah, I know that I'm saved. I know that I have a new master. But, that, you know, but I'm going to walk away from my master. And I'm going I'm to live in between the two kingdoms. And I'm going to make my own kingdom. There's another word for that that was made popular back in the, the end of the 70s and 80s, and we call those, uh, those Christians, uh, it starts with a C, that now all of a sudden I lost my mind, I should have wrote it in my notes, but oh, carnal Christians, they're the sinful Christians, they just love to live in their sin, they're saved, but they're, we call those backsliding Christians, I call them loophole Christians, they're trying to find loopholes for not living as God, as their Lord and Master. And Paul's saying, you can't do that. You can't brush off what God has done for you in grace, the grace that he's given you, cheapen that grace and go occasionally and just say, I can just do this, it's okay. Right? I'd be like, oh, you know what, I'm a little short on cash today. I'm a pretty good person. I know I'm saved and and I, I don't do bad, I, don't, I normally don't do bad things. It's okay, I'm just going to go hold up the, you know, I'm going to go hold up uh, Barb's Bakery after they make all the donuts and sell out, right? You know, after they've sold all their goods. And then I'm going to go take all that cash home because I really need it today, right? Well, no, sin is sin. Now, that one's obvious, but we do that all the time. Oh, I, I can watch this. You know, I'll use my eyes and I'll watch this. It's, I don't live that way. It's okay. Or I'm going to listen to this and it's okay because I really don't believe what they're singing. Or I can do this with my hands because it's, it's really not that bad. We are always trying to figure out loopholes. We're trying to game the system. We're trying to say, 
I'm going to get as much out of this as I can. Paul continues on in verse 16. It says, we are enslaved by what we give respect and listen to with our hearts. In verse 16, he goes on, do you not know? He's like, duh. That's, that's in Greek. It's, I'm going to get real deep here. It's duh. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever, well, don't you know that? It's like when, you know, it's like if you leave the, the meat on high in the barbecue and you walk away and, and you get distracted and you come back and it's charred to a crisp. Well, duh, right? Don't you know that? That's exactly what he's saying here. Do you not know that if you present and you give yourself and put yourself in the court of sin to anyone as obedient slaves, don't you know that? If you, the word obedient means to when you hear someone say something, you follow it. Do you not know? Of course you know that's Paul's point. Of course you know that if you speak... And in Rome, they knew this. They were like, well, yeah, a slave, you know, if, if they give themselves to this master and the master says, do this, they become, they become obedient to that. They present. The word present represents the action of being accomplished by the subject. And it's a willing choice to present yourself to accomplish something for a master. It's a willing choice. When he says the word obedience here, present yourself for obedience, he speaks of the one hearing an order, hearing something, as being under the authority of someone else. It comes to mean compliance. We hear something and we comply. The idea of hearing and complying, it's a picture of submitting yourself to a person or thing that you heard, and hence you obey it. So, you know, you've heard the ideas like, didn't you hear what I said? You know, you've probably heard that from your mom, right? <laughs> yeah. Didn't you hear? You know, like, you know, why aren't you obeying? Obedience is the idea uh, to hear and to place yourself as subordinate under a master to obey. Following instructions, submitting yourself, and involves a change of attitude. And that's the idea. It's like we we the idea here is, is that you give your heart to respect something else other than the Lord. It's to listen, it's to begin to develop ears, your heart to something else. The idea here is you, your heart begins to listen. The passions of your heart begin to, the desires of your heart begin to listen to something else. And you're just, and you become obedient to that something else. It's a natural progression. I've, I've, most of the people that fall at face first into sin, you're like, how did that person ever get there? But if you walk back, you see this, they begin to give their heart to it. They just, they, they say, oh, well, that's not too bad. And, and, they listen, and they, and they just keep listening to it, and eventually they follow it, and then they fall flat on their face to the effects of the sin. That's what Paul is getting at. And then he continues in verse 16, and it says, You are a slave of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Number three is, 
what you choose leads to either a life of destruction or a life of godliness. When we've been saved and we've been put into the kingdom of light, when we've been given a new master and we have a new representative in Christ, we're in Christ, we still are responsible in the choices we make to live under the obedience of our new master or to continue to live as a slave to sin. Sin no longer reigns over your life, nor ever has authority over your life. That, that belongs to the Lord. But you still have to respond and be obedient to your new master. But those decisions, that choice, your responsibility that you choose leads into two opposing directions. People are like, well, man, why is my life so hard? And as I begin to ask questions and you walk back in your life, it's, it's the choices you make. He says it'll lead to death, right? If we choose to obey sin, we choose to allow it to be the, the master of our life, that we, we give ourselves to be a slave to sin, it's going to lead to death. That word death speaks of a destroying power. It's saying that sin is a destroying power that has consequences. That's the idea here of the word death. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. You can't be a slave to two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve, that word there, by the way, you cannot be a slave. It's not serve as a servant. It's serve as a slave, God, and money. You can't have two masters. He gives us an illustration of God and money. Either you'll be devoted to one and you'll despise. It begins down this perpetual road of being in love with one or, being, or despising one. That's what it says in James chapter 1. It goes on the same idea. But when each person is tempted, when he is lured and enticed by his own desires... Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. It leads to death. That's what Paul is saying. Again, Galatians chapter 6, Paul brings this out even further in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. You can't make a mockery of God. He knows exactly what's going on in your heart. He knows whether... You're, you're setting your God up as the master of your life from your heart, or if it's still devoting and you're serving as a slave sin. Don't be mocked. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he reap also. For the one who sows of his flesh will from his flesh reap corruption, that which leads to death. It's decay. But the one who sows of the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in the due season we will reap. Reap what? The benefits of what we sow in the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, all those things that we desperately want that the world cannot give us. Being a slave to sin will never reap those things. It just reaps more corruption. But he says, look, not only that, but in verse 16, he goes on to say, if you're obedient to the Lord, you're going to reap 
Righteousness. Well, what is righteousness? It's having a right character before God. It's having a right action. We're going to live a life where we do have good action before our brothers and sisters around us. It should sound familiar. Remember the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. When we are obedient to the Lord, we're a slave to the Lord, we can do the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Righteousness of God could be succinctly stated as all that God is, all that he commands, all that he demands, and all that he approves us, approves of us, all that he has provided through faith in Christ. We have a choice. When you choose to obey sin, we become a slave to sin. When we choose to obey God, we become slaves to his complete glory to his righteousness, to doing the right things. We can't do the right things when we serve sin. The fourth thing here is that we are given a new heart by God to hear and follow him. This is interesting as we get to verse 17. As I have to... Verse 17, he says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. You were given a new heart by God to hear and follow him. Don't underestimate that be, but thanks be to God. You realize there he said, it didn't say, but thanks be to us. Continuing that idea that we're not under the law, but under grace. It's the work that God, the new heart that we were given was a work of God. It's not our work. In fact, it says, but thanks be to God. It's not thanks to me. But Paul says, give thanks to God for your new life. Because we have become, it indicates now that they are possessed by a new nature given by God, which enables them to obey and to live rightly. The verb, by the way, become obedient, is in the passive voice. That means you couldn't have done it. This new life that you were given, this new kingdom, this new life, was not something you did, but it was something that God did for you. You have a new agent that is actively working in your life. When he says that you have become this new creation, you've been given this new life, It's something that he did. And he says, from the heart. You you didn't just get a new mind, a new way of thinking. You didn't just get a new head, but you got a new control center. Paul is describing more than an intellectual acceptance and a stoic, oh, I, I know who God is. And it's not this stoic obedience. He is, it's, he is saying that the new believer's new obedience come from deep within, from a new heart, which is indwelt by the power of God. We begin a new, new battery, right? To do the right things. It's not about us, but it's about what God has done. And he goes on to say that we've been stamped by the mold 
the mold of God's word and been given over to the power of God's word to change. What changes us? It's not what we do, but it's being obedient to what God has said. He's given us a new new life, a new mold for living, which we're committed to. Martin Lloyd Jones, he has a great book. If you never read it, I recommend it. It may take you a while to parse through it uh, because of the depth of it. Um, if you've if you've been part of our Knowing God series uh, in in our adult Bible study, this you can read this book then because that one will help you read this one. But the book that he wrote was called Spiritual Depression, and it's it's causes and cures. And you know what's amazing is that he devotes a whole chapter in this book just to verse seventeen of Romans six, a whole chapter just to this verse. And he says, and he notes this, he says, the first he notes that God changes us by bringing our minds and our heart under the teaching of his word. By the way, he goes on, he says, scholars debate over why Paul uses the word form or pattern or example of teaching rather than just teaching. We can't be We can't be dogmatic, but my guess, he says, from the context, is that he is contrasting his teaching of the gospel of grace with the false teaching of both the legalists and the antinomians who are against the law. In other words, Martin Lloyd-Jones is referring to the kind of teaching that was set forth in Romans to this point, and especially to the bottom line test That sound doctrine leads to godly behavior. Did you notice at the end it says, to which you were committed? Right? Back in the day when somebody was not found to be sound of mind, what happened? They don't have these places anymore, but they were committed to a facility. And they had different names for them. Right? I happened to be born in a hospital that later became one of those facilities. So that's my running joke. Whenever we drive past it in Salem, I said, yep, I was born there. And it says mental facility. (laughs) And so I always laugh. My wife's like, yep, now we know what your problem is. (laughs) But the bottom line is, it says to which you were committed. This is exactly what Paul's been saying with being a slave This lines up with the slave analogy. The idea is that becoming a Christian means being put under the authority of God's word. That's what it means to which you were committed. Which ends with being a slave to righteousness. Formerly we were a slave and we served sin. But we obeyed and we continue to obey its desires, its urges. But now we are to obey, to serve, to be a slave to righteousness. We obey God. We obey his word. The irony that is true freedom is not freedom to sin. Rather, but freedom is slavery to God and his righteousness and from the consequences of sin. As we close, I have two things. This is huge in our life. 
you are, there is no third category in our life. You are either a slave to God and his life, or you're a slave to sin and the consequences of that sin. Spurgeon observed in his message about this verse, he said, free will I have often heard of, but I've never seen it. I have met with will and plenty of it, but it has either been led me to the captivity by sin, to be captive by sin, or held in blessed bonds of grace. So the choice is not, should I give up my freedom so that I can submit to God? Rather it is, should I serve sin or should I serve God? We've had a heart transplant. We have a new master. We've been put into a new mold of God's word. We have a new stamp on our life that, that, that gives us life. Who is your master? Who do you, your ears and your eyes and your hands go to on a regular basis? I want to illustrate this question of who is your master by we could talk about there's a there's the famous story of the the elephant you know they tie him up as a, a baby with a, just a little rope small rope but they learn that they can never pull against it so it you know as they get older there's still the same rope that holds this ginormous animal and they never break free even though they could snap it like a twig there was a bazaar in a village in India. A farmer had bought a covey of quail. Some of you own quail, raise quail. They're a fascinating bird. They're fun to chase. They're fun to watch fly. They're, they're just cute, and they taste good. <laughs> but each bird, this farmer that had raised all of these quail, had tied a little bitty thread around each foot of the birds of the quail, and had stuck them to a stick that he had pointed in another piece of wood. So it was like a peg, right? Just stuck it in. The quail would walk around and around in circles, being held in captivity by that string. Over time, no one was buying the quail until a devout Hindu Brahmin came along. They, you know, they don't like to eat animals and, unless they're, for some reason, dogs. <laughs> but I don't understand that. But they, so he came and he was a rich Hindu. So he bought all the quail. His religious respect for all life and compassions for these birds to say, what is your asking price? And he paid the price. And he said, I will buy them all. And he paid the money. He gave it to the merchant. And then he ordered the merchant to set them free. Merchant looked at the guy like, what? The merchant was surprised. The merchant cut the strings and of all of them. And as the farmer cut the strings, the quail kept marching around and around the stick. Around in the circle. Finally, he had to shoo them off and push them away. But to the chagrin of the Hindu, 
they flew back and kept walking around the stick. Well, they landed a short way and they kept going around and around and around. They kept doing what they were accustomed to. Who's your master? Who are you lending the ear of your heart to in your life? It's easy. There was a time in my life when sports became that master. It was sin. Not sports wasn't a sin, but it was I devoted my life to that. So much so that I quit going to church for a time because that was my master. I didn't feel comfortable in church. I didn't like certain people in church because I felt guilty around them. I started blaming them and saying that they were the problem for church. And I, I started, you know, like, well, look what I, this, these people over here, they let me sin. They don't care. But yet all these people over here, they loved me and they kept confronting me in my sin. And I said all sorts of things about them. A couple years after I broke my leg a couple of times, twisted my knee, got eventually every time I tried to play, I ended up on the sidelines. <laughs> I finally realized that, you know what, my choice is, I was just miserable. Nothing was the way it was. Everybody that liked me because I was a good sports person, I had great sports ability, they didn't like me anymore because I kept getting hurt, right? And that began my life of accidents. <laughs> Pre, <laughs> I don't know what it was, but it just, my life has been filled with accidents since then. But here's the thing. I realized that sports was a master to me. I had given myself over and it became sin. I was a slave to sin. I came back and said, God, I'll do whatever you want. All of a sudden, my life was free. I saw my anger, confessed that, asked for forgiveness of those that I've been unduly slandering and gossiping about. All of a sudden, everything free, and it was free. It was just, all of a sudden, church was joyful, and, and serving the Lord was exciting. It was just freeing, and I just loved being in the Word, and I loved people, and I just wanted to be around people more and more. Those that I once hid from, God didn't set you free from sin. He didn't save you so that you would keep walking around it in circles. He cut the strings to sin. But what we do, he, God says, hey, you're free. And what do we do? We land and we just keep doing this. And some of us have even flown back and sit there and do this. Some of us, though, we're godly. We flew away from the stick, but we're still doing this. Is your life revolving around sinful things? Are you still in bondage to that? God freed you from sin so you'd become a slave of obedience to him, resulting in a life of righteousness. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Live, to command, live as people who are free not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves 
of God. That's what God wants for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message this morning. And I fear that many of us like to play the middle. Say, well, I'm not really a slave to sin, but I know that I'm not really a slave to God, and, but I'm all right. But Lord, you, you show us that eventually that life always leads to destruction. There's a way that seems right and demand, but it leads to death. It leads to destruction. But Lord, you have freed us to live in righteousness. You have prepared good works for us beforehand. While we were yet being formed in our mother's womb, you knew us. You formed us. You had good works planned for us to be free in those works, those good works that you have provided. Free of torment, filled with great joy. Free of the anxiety, and, but full of contentment. Lord, would we realize that it's easy for us to be pulled back by our, the eyes of our hearts or the ears of our heart, by the works of our hands and our feet. It's easy to be tempted back to sin, but help us not to live there. Help us to flee to you and to the freedom that you've given us through Christ. Thank you for this timely message. Help us to live as freed men in Christ, our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.